We will be reading from Mark 10, verses 1 through 16. If you want to follow in the Pew Bible, you will find it on page 1199, Mark 10, 1 through 16. And rising up, he went from there to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan, and crowds gathered around him again. And according to his custom, he once more began to teach them. And some Pharisees came up to him, testing him, and began to question him whether it was lawful for a man to divorce a wife. And he answered and said to them, What did Moses command you? And they said, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. But Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But you, but from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this cause, a man shall leave his father and mother, and the two shall become one flesh. Consequently, they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. And in the house, the disciples began questioning him about this again. And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her. And if she herself divorces her husband and marries another man, she is committing adultery. And they were bringing children to him so that he might touch them. And the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw this, he was indignant and said to them, Permit the children to come to me. Do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it at all. And he took them in his arms and began blessing them, laying his hands upon them. May God bless this reading of his word. Now on this first Sunday of focus on God and family, I have two points I want to make from this text. I'll tell you what they are, and then I'll try to unfold them and relate them at the end. The first is this. Marriage is a work of God and gets its meaning from God. And its meaning is mainly the portrayal of the covenant love between Christ and his church. That's point number one. Point number two is this. Children are a work of God and get their meaning from God. And their meaning is mainly that they exist in their uniqueness as children to illustrate how to enter the kingdom of God. So those are my two points, and we'll take them one at a time. I'll try to show you where I get them and then how they are, in my mind, very profoundly related because of these two paragraphs here. The first point, then, marriage is a work of God and gets its meaning from God. And that meaning is primarily the portrayal of a covenant love between God and his people. In verse 2, the Pharisees came to Jesus to test him about his views of marriage and the law. And they ask if it's lawful for a man to divorce his wife. And he puts the question back to them and asks what Moses taught in verse 3. And they say in verse 4 that Moses permitted divorce. But Jesus says uh, in verse 5, he gave you this commandment for the hardness of your heart. In other words, the law 
that you use to justify your divorces and your remarriages testifies not to the desire of God's heart, but the hardness of your own. God is not tolerated in the beginning what he has tolerated and regulated in the law. So he points back to a, a beginning, it seems like. Verse 6, he says, But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. The strange sequence of thought there, if you read it. Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning, there were male and female. In other words, Genesis 1.27, which he's quoting, God created man, male and female, is the origin and the defining point of marriage. It's God's idea. It's not man's idea. That's what he's getting at here. It's rooted in creation, not convention, not culture. The issue of divorce and remarriage traces itself back to God's design. Divorce and remarriage is not mainly about how God regulated the hardness of man's heart. It's mainly about the meaning of marriage in God's creation design. So he takes us back behind the law to God created man, male and female. This is the basis of marriage. It is not man's idea. Now, in verses seven and eight, Jesus makes explicit the connection between God's creation of man as male and female on the one hand and marriage on the other hand. He says, for this reason, referring back to what he just said in quoting Genesis 1:27, because God created man, male and female, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. In other words, the leaving of mother and father and the cleaving to one another to form a new family unit is God's idea rooted in creation, rooted in the way God designed it from the beginning when he created us male and female. And then comes, in verse 9, one of the most important, powerful declarations and commandments in the Bible. Therefore, in view of how God created it, in view of how he designed it in chapter 2, verse 24 of Genesis, therefore, what God has joined together, let no man separate. The declaration is that marriage is a work of God. You see that, don't you? What God has joined together, what God has joined together, the union of marriage is something God does. This is true whether you are a believer or an unbeliever. This is a, this is a creation ordinance. Marriage is something God does, not man merely. It's not a mere human decision. It's not a mere human tradition. It's something God designed, Genesis 1.27. It's something he described, Genesis 2.24. And now we see it is something he does, what God has joined. No man shall put asunder.
So my point is, so far, marriage is a work of God and gets its meaning from God. So there's a great declaration. It's a work of God and a great commandment. Let no man separate this thing that God has joined. But the disciples are not satisfied. This is this is a troubling thing for the disciples. And therefore, they ask, it says in verse 10, they ask again. They ask about it again. The again referring back earlier to what the Pharisees had asked. Is it lawful? And so Jesus goes on. You want me to go on? I'll go on. Is it lawful? And so first Jesus addresses the man who is contemplating leaving his wife. And he says to him, verse 11, whoever divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her. And then in verse 12, he turns to the woman who's contemplating leaving her husband. And he says to her, and if she divorces her husband and marries another, she is committing adultery. Now, what's the point here? What's he saying? Why does he talk this way? Doesn't Jesus know that this is going to hurt? Doesn't Jesus know that in his audience and in this room, there are people who are divorced and remarried? Doesn't Jesus know that there are parents of people who are divorced and remarried? Doesn't Jesus know there are children of people who are divorced and remarried? Doesn't he know that to talk like this hurts? Well, I think he knows that. He knows that. And he cares about that. In fact, I think if he were here, he would probably, he could easily say what we all know, that it hurts more than death to have a marriage breakup. Far better to lose a spouse in death than divorce. Far easier. Far easier. The pain is of a qualitatively different kind and heals so well. And so much damage. So much damage is done in divorce. Jesus knows that. However, unlike our day where many people, I'm tempted to say most people, define love as not hurting feelings, Jesus does not define love that way. He doesn't. Jesus defines love as helping people live in sync with reality, namely God. Say it again. Jesus defines love as helping people live in sync with God. Whether it hurts or it doesn't hurt. Sometimes it hurts and sometimes it doesn't hurt. That's not the issue of love. The issue of love is, are we helping each other live in sync with God, where alone there is peace and hope, joy and righteousness and future. So the eight, 
The question is whether we'll believe him in his efforts here to help us live in sync with God. What's his aim in these verses? I think his aim is prevention, not destruction. He's talking to those who can still turn back, and there are some in this room who can still turn back. He's saying marriage is God's idea. He designed it. He described it. He does it. It's one of the deepest realities in the universe. Deeper than anybody in this room knows marriage is. What God joins together, he joins together deeply. Not superficially, not cavalierly, not whimsically, not temporarily. What God joins together, he joins together deeply, deeper than feelings, deeper than promises, deeper than sex, deeper than friendship. One flesh is a deep, 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 deep mystery. That's what Paul calls it in Ephesians 5:32, after he quotes the same verse Jesus quoted. Man shall leave his mother and father and cleave to his wife. He says, it is a great mystery. And I take it to mean Christ and the church. There's the meaning of marriage, folks. Marriage exists in the world to be a living, deep, Display of the covenant bond between Christ and his church, which God will never, 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 never break. That's the meaning of marriage. And that's why he is so solemn about this. And so huge in verses 11 and 12. It is so serious. It is so serious. Marriage is an ocean of depth and unseen wonders. And yet many people today treat it like a backyard swimming pool for lounging around until you don't feel like it anymore. Jesus says, God joined this. God joined this. God joined this. The charge of adultery in verses 11 and 12 is far deeper than anybody thinks. Far deeper. Marriage is an image of the covenant commitment between Christ and his church for whom he died. To walk away from marriage for another relationship is not just about marriage. It's about Christ and about God. What God has joined together in man and woman and Christ and church don't separate. Now, in passing, let me tell you where I stand on the issue in some of your heads right now, which this sermon is not about, but I need to say a sentence about it. Before I move on to children, 
I think, and I may be wrong about this, that the solemnity of the charge of adultery for breaking a marriage is one reason why you shouldn't break a second one. Okay? That's my stand. Rather, you should repent if you need to. Start where you are to honor those awesome promises. And cost what it may, fulfill your calling to live out a rock-solid image of Christ and the church. But I'll tell you, with all the seriousness that lies within me, if you're on the front end of that possibility and you use what I just said to justify divorce and remarriage, you just may go to hell for that. Don't you dare turn grace into licentiousness. Read Second Peter if you want to find out what happens to people who do. Second point. The first point was marriage is a work of God and gets its meaning from God. And its meaning is mainly the portrayal of a covenant relationship between Christ and the church. Now, here's my second point. Children are a work of God and get their meaning from God. And that meaning, the meaning of children, is that they display in their dependence the way into the kingdom of God. I don't think it's a coincidence that the paragraph that follows the paragraph on marriage is a paragraph on children. I don't think that's an accident. Let's read it. Verse 13, and they were bringing children to him so that he might touch them, but the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw this, he was indignant and said, permit the children to come to me. Do not hinder them. For the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child will not enter it. And he took them in his arms and began blessing them and laying his hands on them. Mm. I love Jesus. I love Jesus so much. He can move from deep, solemn, difficult words right into holding children on his lap. Don't you just love the way Jesus is? I love it. I want to be like that. Now, here's the question. Why do we invest so much money in children and time at this church? Why do we hire David and Sally, Michael, and assistants and hundreds of workers with children and we build for it? Why do we staff Wednesday night and we do clubs and we do choirs? Why do we make a big deal out of parenting? What is the big deal for all of this effort and all of this money and all of March devoted to families and parenting and children and marriage and so on? What, what gives here? Why do we do that? What's the big deal? Now, Jesus' answer to that here is surprising. It was very surprising as I meditated on this text. Verse 14, 
at the end of the verse or in the middle where he says, permit the children to come to me. Now, that's just a negative way of saying. Really before children, before them and not against them, bring them to me so I can put my hands on them, and bless them, devote energy at your church to getting children into the presence of Jesus where the hands of blessing are all over them. Work at that. And now here comes the reason. He gives the reason. For, you see, you with me in the middle of verse 14 there near the end? For the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. That's his reason. But now, are you hearing the, the words exactly as they are? He did not say, for the kingdom belongs to these. That'd be a strong argument for being in favor of children. But he didn't say that. He said, the kingdom belongs to such as these. Treat children with incredible warmth and love and respect and engagement because they stand for something. They represent a certain kind of thing. Don't hinder these from coming because the kingdom belongs to people like that, like that. These kids are about showing us something about how to get into the kingdom. That's what kids are about. Have you ever stopped like I stopped recently and asked um, why there are kids? Why God did it this way. Think about that for a minute. I'll be back to it in just a sec. In answering that question, who are the such as these? Who are they? Well, verse 15 gives the answer, doesn't it? Truly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child will not enter it. So there they are. Those who are like children, dependent humble, needy, insufficient in themselves, looking away from themselves to others to meet their needs, to God, namely, they enter the kingdom. So the such as these in verse 14 are the people who are like children entering the kingdom in verse 15. Don't hinder the children from coming to me because these children represent something awesome, namely how to get into the kingdom. In their very dependence, in their very reliance, in their need and insufficiency and faith, they represent how to get into the kingdom. Now, what's he saying? I think it goes something like this. At least this is the question that came to me. Why do children exist? That is, why didn't God design Adam and Eve to reproduce like earthworms? He could have. Why not just have a particular way of of uh, having a, an adult come out of your side the way Eve came out of Adam's side? He could have done it that way. He could have gotten kind of deformed for a while and then all of a sudden, bonk, and there's two people. I mean, there's, and if it were happening that way, we wouldn't laugh about it. We, we would just, that's the way it is. But But God set it up so that human beings come into the world 
absolutely helpless and stay that way for a long time. And they have to learn and they have to go through all kinds of stages of development. Why? Why? It's a real pain. <laughs> and has so much to teach us. So much we need these little ones, don't we? I think that's what he's saying here. Don't forbid these children from coming to me. That is, engage to get them to me. Do this thing on Wednesday night. Do this thing called Sunday school. Do this thing called March for Families. Do this thing called parenting, uncling, aunting, grandparenting. Do this thing because I have created these little ones to be in the world to represent something awesome about what you need, adults. You need to be like them. You need to be lowly and helpless and empty and needy and insufficient in yourselves and utterly dependent, dependent on your heavenly father or you won't ever get into the kingdom. That's the meaning of childhood in the world. That's what you're to read off of the existence of children. We have a heavenly father to relate to him properly. We've got to become like that. To enter the kingdom, we must receive it like a child. Now, I close by asking this question. What's the connection between the marriage section of this text and the children's section of this text? The marriage point was marriage is a work of God and displays the covenant love of God between the church and Christ. The point of the children's section I have now said is that children are a work of God and that their point in the universe is to display by their dependence the way into the kingdom of God, such as these enter the kingdom of God. Now, what's the connection? One way to say it, and I'm sure I'm not being exhaustive here, is that verse 9 is one way to obey verse 15. That is, verse 15 says we should receive the kingdom like a child, receive the kingdom. Now, in verse 9, we have the king standing in front of a married couple, talking to them. And the king says to them, the design of my kingdom is that marriages not be broken. Will you receive my kingship and my care and my protection and my direction over your married life? Will you have me as your king in your marriage? Will you submit to my design for your marriage as your king and your creator? Or will you reject my kingship and design your own life? Will you be a child here and humble yourself and submit yourself to me, not knowing how it might work? Not, children don't know how to grow up. They don't know what adult life brings. They don't know what the future holds. They don't even know how to get in bed at first. They don't even know how to... Find food. They're totally dependent on their father and mother. And that's the way we're to enter the kingship of Jesus, even in marriage. How's this thing going to work tomorrow? I don't know. You don't need to know. You're not God. You're a child. You're a baby. You don't need to know. You've got a God. 
If you do that, if you submit, two wonderful things happen for children. And this is true whether you have children or not. One, you honor by your humility and dependence and faith, you honor their unique reason for being. Namely, to show the way to heaven, to show the way to the kingdom through childlike dependence on the grace of God, which is the only way anybody stays married. Number two, you will preserve and honor the God-designed haven of marriage. We need to work at honoring the haven of marriage where from generation to generation, children are brought to Jesus for blessing. So I close by this exhortation and promise. Don't separate what God has joined. Tough it out. Talk it out. Pray it out. Fast it out. Cry it out. Wait it out. And when all of your resources are gone, be like a helpless child, insufficient, needy, trusting, and receive the king's help. He promises to give you the help. But don't break it up. Don't break it up. The final word of hope and encouragement. He comes to us. The king comes to us this morning and he says, I am an all providing, all loving king. If you receive my kingly design for your marriage, even if you must do it by yourself, I will be there to help you. With man, it is impossible. Hence the demand for childlikeness. But with God, all things are possible. Hence the command not to separate what God has joined. Lord, do it for our souls. Do it for our marriages. Do it for our children. And above all, Do it for the glory of your name, I pray.